Welcome to The Screeners, Episode 16. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, so we celebrate Screener style by discussing some of our favorite holiday films. The Hills Are Alive, with the sound of Carrie Underwood. We discuss NBC's revival of a live musical experience in The Sound of Music. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are rumored to be developing a movie on the comic Sleeper. Are we interested? And finally, we have stats that prove once and for all that television is dead. It's Katniss versus the Capitol. As we enter the Hunger Games in Catching Fire, are the odds in our favor? And finally, in the cutting room floor, we shine a light on the exciting new Epic of Haven trilogy. You don't want to miss it. Let's go. From the big screen to the small screen and everything in between, this is the Screeners Podcast, where all media is appreciated, but none is safe. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Screeners Podcast. This is Josh. And Chad. I'm Chris. And Melody. And we're back again to talk all things media. Now, as you've realized by now, we do love to hear ourselves talk, but we also love to hear from you. So if you've heard anything on the show that you want to talk about more with us, or if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about on a future show, drop us a comment over at ScreenersPodcast.com, look us up on Facebook, or send us an email at ScreenersCast at gmail.com. All right, without any further ado, let's get started. All right, guys, welcome to Jump Cuts. This is the segment of the show where we take 60 seconds each to talk about our view on a particular topic or question. And at the end of 60 seconds, if you go over time, you're going to hear this sound. All right, so here we go. The holiday season is upon us, and so I was curious if you have a favorite holiday movie or movies. So let's see here. Josh, I know this is the perfect question to ask you. So (laughs) with all of your excitement leading up to the holiday season, um, I know you probably have one of those ugly sweaters on right now. Josh, what is your favorite holiday film of all time? You're really going to start with the guy whose heart is three sizes too small. You're going to start. <laughs> yeah. Come on, you got to have one. Well, well, let's see. The End of a Christmas Carol terrified me as a child. <laughs> That's good. Um, I guess the closest thing I have to a holiday favorite is It's a Wonderful Life, which is an absolute mm. classic. And if I have to pick another one to go with it, probably national lampoon's christmas vacation all right classic can't go wrong with that one yeah absolutely that's about all i got i've seen a christmas story but i haven't really i haven't really sucked it in as part of my repertoire you should suck it in (laughs) i assimilated i was stretching for a word and i came out with nothing assimilated that's what he meant all right this is futile very nice. That's, that's a nice list, Josh. That was it a lot. a good list. See, you have a heart after all. <laughs> Melody, what are your favorite holiday films? Okay, so I have three. If I'm choosing a classic holiday film, I would say White Christmas because it's awesome and the music mm-hmm. is lovely. Bing Crosby. Thank you for that, for that Chad. Uh, <laughs> if I'm choosing a strictly like Christmas movie, holiday movie, uh, I would say Elf. Because it's hysterical and I laugh yes. every time, even though I've seen it a million times. There's still like a good 10 laugh out loud moments in that movie. Mm-hmm. So I love it very much. And my number one all time <laughs> favorite Christmas film is While You Were Sleeping. I know I'm not really a chick flick girl anymore, but back in the day of days of my youth, I was. And I have very fond memories of While You Were Sleeping. 
being my favorite Christmas movie. So it shall remain so. Thank you very much. That's terribly sad. Shut up. No, it's not. It's awesome. Wow. Shut up. If by awesome, you mean awful. (laughs) Okay, Chad, why don't you throw your hat into the ring and tell us what your favorite holiday films of all time are. All time. All right, well, I think that Melody and Josh both have mentioned a couple that I really like. Mm -hmm. But if I had to pick three, I'm going to go with one from my early days and then one from, like, my high school days and then one that is more recent. Early days is Gremlins. I remember... (laughs) <laughs> have you guys even seen the original Gremlins? I know you weren't yes. born when it came out. Sorry. Yes, I have. Uh, I think it was like the first, I could be wrong about this, but I think it was the first ever PG-13 movie, or maybe it was the reason PG-13 was actually invented. That's how old I am. But uh, I remember I was like, I thought I thought Gizmo was just like the cutest thing ever, but the Gremlins were pretty scary. So I love that. Um, and then more recently, Scrooged with Bill Murray. I love, yes. just love yes. that movie. I've probably like seen it. that one a thousand times. And then more recently, or, or most recently, I should say, is Bad Santa. I love me some Bad Santa. As a matter of fact, Bad-er Santa, which is the uncut DVD, is the greatness. So I don't recommend that one for the kiddies, but if you can stomach <laughs> some don't. raunchy humor, it's pretty spectacular. So those would be my three. Don't watch that nice. one, Mom. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Scrooged is definitely on my list as well. I loved that movie. It was so fun to have a play on the uh, the normal. Put a little uh, love in your heart. Uh, yeah, exactly. The, the the anyway, a classic tale, um, but told a little differently with, of course, Bill Murray in it. How could it go wrong? Okay, so for me, I've got a couple uh, on my list. Um, the first one I think for me, just growing up, was definitely my favorite Christmas movie, and that was Home Alone. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know about you guys, but Home Alone was just. Awesome. Uh, I I love that. Was, I think it was more of a fantasy for a kid to feel like they're going to have you know a week alone and they could like stand their own against you know the oncoming um, you know thieves or whatever. But it was it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Home Alone's great. Um, I have a lot of movies that I remember that I watch during the holiday season, but aren't really Christmas uh, movies. Things like The Wizard of Oz, like that's really like a, a Christmas classic in our family. That we'd watch that every. Uh, Christmas season as it comes along, but I have to think as far as like my movie that I really enjoy <laughs> No, no, true. you've got to do your most favorite of all time. Go for it. Uh, that would be Die Hard. Die Hard uh, is <laughs> that's awesome. A, that's a great Christmas movie. At it least is. it is a Christmas movie, Mr. Wizard of Oz. What the heck is that? Well, Wizard of Oz <laughs> it's a I'm Christmas saying, classic, except for the part where there's no Christmas <laughs> in it. That's what I said. I, I prefaced it. I said it's not a Christmas movie, but I watch it during the Christmas season. So okay. I guess you should have changed yeah. the question to say that. I know and... some about family traditions there. Yeah. Your favorite Just... Christmas movie or family tradition. Whatever. That's good. Right. <laughs> you know what? I didn't write, I didn't write the, the, the question. My wife did. I just took it humbly. Number two. Okay, so I don't watch a ton of TV these days, and I had not seen any promotions for the upcoming NBC special, The Sound of Music Live, okay? But one of my friends mentioned a while ago that they had cast Carrie Underwood to play Maria in The Sound of Music somewhere, and I thought that sounded really weird. I had no idea what she was talking about. But then I was browsing the interwebs today for some media news, and I stumbled upon an article about this live performance that they're doing of The Sound of Music on December 5th. Um, and apparently it's kind of a big deal uh, because, 
like broadcast networks haven't really attempted to air like a full length live musical in like 50 years or whatever. So it's like a three hour long event of The Sound of Music with Carrie Underwood as Maria. And I would like to know what you guys think about this and if you will be watching it. Chad, what do you think? Whether I'll be watching it or not uh, is probably a direct has a direct correlation with whether my wife says we will be watching it or not. Although Correct. my initial reaction to this is like, it sounds like the worst thing I've ever heard. But then when I actually think about it, number one, I love the idea that they're actually going to try to bring back a live musical event at, at a holiday season because they used yes. to do those all the time. And I love that stuff. So I like that idea. And number two, even though she's a country singer and Julie Andrews is certainly iconic in the original role and one of the best singers of all time, uh, Karen Underwood's a great singer. Now, she... Contrary to a lot of popular opinion, regardless of what style you sing, her core voice is just really awesome. So I think it could be great. Now, it could be a train wreck. We'll see. I'm kind of, nah, either way. Okay. Chris, what about you? When I first heard this, I thought they were remaking The Sound of Music with Carrie Underwood in it. And then I realized this is more like a stage play that is just being broadcast live. And so that piqued my interest a lot more than them trying to remake The Sound of Music because that would have been really silly and stupid. But I think this looks actually pretty great. Um, I want to watch this with uh, Brenna, uh, my uh, four-year-old. Um, I think she'll really enjoy it. I think she'll have a good time. NBC has been surprising me lately. And I'm glad they're willing to take risks, and I think this might pay off. All right. Josh, what about you? <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Chad, believe it or not, Chad actually said a lot of this stuff that I was going to say. But how, he missed one thing, and I'm going to say this slowly to let the horror of it just sink into your bones. I have never... Seen oh, the gosh. sound of music. Of course you have it. Of course you have it. What? At least Chad is not shocked. My heart can no longer be shocked. Be shocked. <laughs> no, I'm not shocked. I'm just. I can't believe you. You're admitting it still. You know what I mean? Like at this point, what I do you mean? You at least can't hide believe it. I would lie about it. I would lie about. It. No, I haven't seen anything. All right. I'd normally be the first to roll my eyes at Carrie Underwood in anything because I can't stand her music. Chad's right that she does have a good voice if she would use it properly. Um, and the live TV musical is a forgotten art. And uh -huh. I, I'm kind of happy to see it brought back. It's, I mean, this is, this is no Andy Williams special, but, you know, way to bring back some old-timey fun. Yeah. All right. M Merry Christmas, Josh. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm kind of in the same boat as you guys. I mean, I I love the sound of music. I I love Carrie Underwood. Can I picture this? Uh, no, I really couldn't at first. Like, I went to the website and it, it brings up a picture of like Carrie Underwood in dresses Maria with her hair all up, you know, in the side braid bun thing and. It just looks so ludicrous at first that I was like, this is seriously going to be the dumbest thing ever. It's going to be a crazy train wreck. But then I watched a couple of like the making of videos and heard a little bit of the music. And I don't know. I, I'm, I'm in the same boat with you guys. I think the live event thing can be really cool. It could also be awful. But I would like to watch it. So I probably will. At some point, I won't watch it live because we don't have live TV. But... I will probably watch it. It can't be any worse than Russell Crowe as Javert, so there's always <laughs> You're that. You're right about that. Yeah, there you go. True story. Number three. All right, word on the street is that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are teaming up again to make a movie. No. Sadly, no, 
before you get all excited, it's not a Goodwill Hunting sequel. It's another comic book movie from the DC universe. The character's name is Sleeper, and he has one of the most uninventive combinations of setting and superpower I have ever heard. <laughs> He's an undercover cop who can heal really fast and store pain to transfer to others later. So my first question, it's a two-part question, is why when DC surely has other comic properties that mm. were produced for more than two years and don't suck. And my second question is, can Matt Damon, sorry, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck <laughs> save it? Chris, go. I am really, I don't understand why they're tackling this particular project. I mean, I guess they see something in the property that maybe is interesting to them, but there is no name recognition. I'd never heard of this comic. I actually went to Comixology on my iPad this afternoon and downloaded like the first, you know the first three pages just to see what what it was and it, I don't know it, it seems more like a sci-fi concept that normally you wouldn't expect to see from um, these guys. You know they've been doing more gritty like crime stuff lately. So I guess this fits kind of into that with a little bit of the comic DC vibes so they're more I don't know. They make more money. I don't know. I, I don't know if this is going to be or go anywhere, but we'll see, I guess. Chad, how about you? What do you think? On the one hand, I, DC makes me scratch my head uh, because they're making all these, they're developing all these television shows, and I yeah. think they need to learn that that doesn't is not working. Agents no, what, of wait, Shield, what? no, weak sauce. Agents of Shield is weak. There's that's just mar- that's Marvel. Marvel. That's Marvel though. I, and Marvel, I, they're let, are you gonna let me finish my story? Seriously, of course not. DC. I know that it's Marvel. That's my point. Marvel okay. is way bigger than DC, and they can't make it work. So the fact that DC is trying to make television work makes me mad. But they need to be expanding their universe with recognizable DC characters in film. Especially if they're trying to emulate uh, Marvel by doing the Justice League and all that stuff. The one thing I do like about this is evidently it's going to be penned by the writers of The Shield and The Killing. So maybe that'll be a more serious take, which is kind of in line with how DC's trying to do things. But I can't get excited. I like Ben Affleck, though, and I love Matt Damon and working together. You know, they've they've done some good stuff. So Rousing endorsement so mm. far. All right. Melody is our biggest comic book fan here. What do you think? Well, you know that I am. Uh, what am, what questions am I supposed to be answering again? Why are they doing this? Uh, Why doing this? and can it be salvaged? Okay, well, I think they're doing it because um, comic book movies are making money, more or less. So they're just finding everything they can to make, even if it's boring, uh, which this movie looks to be. Uh, I Like, I think Affleck as producer is someone to be taken seriously, so like maybe it could be good because of him. And Damon, sure, but there's not really enough to make me want to see it yet. Uh, so I don't know if they can salvage it, Josh. I can't answer that question for you, but I can't say that I care too much at this time. <laughs> well, I can't say that I disagree with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, Chris kind of said it for the, the Hawaii thing. They They have no name recognition. I had no idea who this guy was. I mean, I'm not a big comic book reader to begin with, but... I looked at the article, and this comic was produced from 2003 to 2005 uh, after kind of the big comic book rush was, I don't know. I It doesn't seem like a good idea, and on a rereading of the article, I realized, um, much to my chagrin, that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck aren't you know writing or directing. They're just producing it, mm-hmm. and I don't know whether I have any faith that producers can really have as much of an impact on the movie as I would like Damon and Affleck as filmmakers to have because 
they've both done some great work in the past, but I don't know in the producer role whether they're really going to impact this. Chad did mention that the writers on this movie are decent at least, and it is a noir crime type movie, so it could be okay, but I I don't understand. But with Chad, I don't understand DC's strategy. Batman versus Superman, sure. Justice League, dark. Why not? But who's sleeper and who cares? I don't know and not me. All right. There was a recent article in Business Insider with this wonderful headline, TV is dying and here are the stats to prove it. When I read that headline, I thought one thing, one more opportunity to get Chris and Melody to call themselves cord cutters. So I forwarded along. And it actually has some interesting stats, and the one thing that really caught my attention as I read through this article was that it says that not only are people unplugging and uh, removing their cable subscriptions, but in surprising numbers, many people are also unplugging from home internet high-speed connections. And so that got me thinking uh, that maybe we should talk about some of the trends that are happening as cable TV ratings are shrinking and fewer people are watching television, and some people have even begun to remove internet from their homes in general. So I wanted to talk to you guys and see what you thought about this trend. So Melody, what do you think about this article? I definitely thought there was a lot of interesting uh, information and stats in the article, especially the part, Chad, that you were talking about with the uh, internet subscribers going down as well as the cable subscribers. Um, that's something I would not have expected. It was very interesting. I guess it was saying that a lot of people are using free Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi on their mobile devices to get their um, media content that way so they don't feel the need to have the internet subscription. So I guess that's definitely um, changing the industry. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting was um, the graph that they had about mobile devices taking over uh, media time. Um, they had like a graph where like laptops um, are mostly popular during certain times of day versus phones versus tablets or whatever. And it was saying that tablets um, are basically taking over prime time, which I definitely would say is true in our house. Uh, Chris is always on his on his iPad during the time of day that we used to watch TV or whatever. So, um, I, I mean, I definitely see it happening here as a as a cord-cutting family as we are. So, yeah, it was very interesting, and I, I think it's going to be an ever-changing industry as, as mobile devices continue to take over and people want to consume their content that way. All right. Josh, I know you are for all things failing, so uh, what do you think about <laughs> the death of television? You know me so well, it warms my heart, mm -hmm. my cold, dead heart. <laughs> so, first off, I barely made it through that article. My knuckle got arthritis halfway through scrolling past all those graphs. <laughs> Good grief, man. You need the data Second, to back it up. <laughs> there was data, I'll give you that. Second, congratulations on beating the ferals to saying cord cutter in an episode. Mm -hmm. That's, You're welcome. I congratulate you. Yep. I really can't understand people replacing television with mobile devices as far as what you're actually watching your content on. I, Hulu, Netflix, Amazon Video, sure, you can cut your cable subscription and get all your shows on some other box that you hook up to your TV. But watching them on your phone or tablet, that is literally about the worst way I can think of to watch a TV show besides sitting next to someone who's recounting why they think the last joke was so funny and watching it on a VHS tape. That's <laughs> the only thing that beats that. Murder on your neck. Not fun to hold the screen in front of you while you watch, but, you know, whatever. I've never claimed to be a market genius. 
Um, ultimately, I don't think cable or the cable networks are going away. They're in the process of pivoting to online subscription models, and the networks that actually have quality content are going to be fine. CBS will be fine until all the baby boomers <laughs> die, and after that, all bets are off. So, Chris, what do you think? Well, first of all, I love all the graphics of TVs exploding in this article. That's probably my favorite part of this. Um, first of all, okay, so um, we need a new way of talking about these issues because whenever this article was talking about television um, and broadcast TV and broadband, it all gets confusing. Like, I watch TV, but I don't have a cable subscription. Um, so we need a new way of you know, talking about that, like, whether it be shows or whatever else. I don't know. I just seem. I, I just feel like this is another one of these... Um, articles that you know say everything's going to end. It's the death of whatever, whatever, and it just seems like it's just going to change. It's the way that everything works. You know, it's not going to die. It's just going to morph and change into something new. Netflix and Google are going to be the the new NBC and you know uh, blockbuster. Uh, so that's just the way it's going. It's just the way it's going to be. It's just it's going to continue to morph and and grow and, and be something different. I'm excited about it because, as you've already said, uh, I'm a cord cutter. I don't really care what's going on as far as cable boxes go. I'm more interested in what's going online. So, anyway, that's that's my two cents. I, I think it's uh, exciting and I can't wait. I'm not going to add much new to the conversation other than to say that uh, it's inevitable that we're going to have some sort of a la carte model. I'm intrigued specifically with devices like the Xbox One, which um, is not there yet. It's still in beta, but in a way that can control your your DVR and cable box for right now. But eventually that will morph into whatever myriad of online services that you have where yeah. uh, you can just come in and say, I want to watch this. And if it's available online, you can pay a fee to watch it. And so I think we'll get there. I don't think we're going to save a bunch of money. I think I've heard people say, it's going to be great. It'll be so much cheaper. It's not huh. going to be any cheaper. <laughs> it might be more expensive. You'll just have more choice. But it's definitely, uh, we're definitely going that direction. And I, I'm all for it. It'll be great. Welcome to the main event. This week on our main event, we're talking about the Hunger Games catching fire. Ladies and gentlemen. The victors of the 74th Hunger Games, Katniss Everdeen and Peter Malark. She's not who they think she is. She just wants to save her skin. Simple as that. She has become a beacon of hope for them. So she has to be eliminated. What do you think? I agree she should die, but in the right way. At the right time. Katniss Everdeen is a symbol. You don't have to destroy her, just her image. Show them that she is one of us now. Let them rally behind that. David, please, please just help me get through this trip. This trip doesn't end when you get back home. So what do we do? From now on, your job is to be a distraction so people forget what the real problems are. Her entire species must be eradicated. Her species, sir? The other victors. Because of her, they all pose a threat. Because of her, they all think they're invincible. The IMDb description of the Hunger Games catching fire is as follows. Katniss Everdeen and Peeta Malark become targets of the capital after their victory in the 74th Hunger Games sparks a rebellion in the districts of Panem. We're going to talk about this movie today, and I'm very excited to hear 
Uh, in particular, what Josh has to say about this, uh, I believe. Yes, uh, oh, you'll hear it. <laughs> I believe that it's going to be very exciting. Um, this is the follow-up uh, film to the original Hunger Games based on a series of young adult novels that were a worldwide success. Uh, as a matter of fact, The Hunger Games Catching Fire opened to a weekend take of about $158 million domestically, which I Woo! believe is the largest November opening of all time. So oh, it, wow. it's a... Massive success and actually a critical success as well. Uh, I have, after I saw the movie, checked Rotten Tomatoes, and it looks like <laughs> it's around the high 80s, uh, yep. are calling this a fresh film, an improvement over the original. Uh, and so I'm very interested to see what you guys think about The Hunger Games Catching Fire. So, Chris, let's start with you. You know, I, as much as I want to tell what I thought about this movie, I'd really like Josh to go first. Would that be all right? Are Can you, you switch serious? things around and just hear <laughs> What Josh thought, and then we can like feed off of. The are, joy. are you certain you want to yield the floor? I, mean, I, I want to yield the floor. <laughs> Be my, sure about this decision. To my, to oh, my no. good friend from Washington D.C. Oh dear. Uh, so the the floor yields to Josh. And now before and before Josh goes to, let me say I meant to say at the beginning. This movie is directed by Francis Lawrence, uh, who prior to this was known for uh, Constantine. Uh, some of you may have seen Water for Elephants. I am legend. Right. I am legend. I am legend. I he is, he's certainly known for a visual style that is uh, unique. And so what did you think about Francis Lawrence's Hunger Games? Joshua. All right. So let me start out by saying that my wife, bless her heart, likes going to the theater much more than I do. But for the movies we've talked about for these past two episodes, Ender's Game and now this, even she has said... Reluctantly, I, you know, honey, I don't think we should um, necessarily spend the family's money on me going to this one at the theater. <laughs> so that should tell you something. I, in order to discuss the second movie, I have to talk a little bit about the first one because I watched it with her in preparation for this on Netflix the night before the second one, which uh, in retrospect might have been a mistake to cram them all into one weekend because it's just too much awesome. So, <laughs> in the first movie... So you've not I, read the books? I have not read the books. That is an important caveat okay. that I will mm. get into in a little bit. Uh, so at first, in the first movie, I was just bored. But then, a little way into the games in the arena, my wife told me that I should just be viewing everything that was happening through the lens of a really bad day at high school. And after that, because that's, that's the allegory that's at play here, and after that... It all kind of made sense. First, the popular kids all gang up on you. Then it rains on you as you're walking to class. You don't have anything good for lunch. And then, you know, wild dogs chase you home. It all fits. <laughs> wow. So, but I'm supposed to be talking about the second movie here, and, and I will. Um, I rarely feel like a movie is both too long and too short. But I had that sensation a whole lot during Catching Fire. Because about a half hour or so into it, before they get into things, I won't say too much now, I, I started reluctantly drawing these parallels that I think the author may or may not have had in mind, again, not having read it. The, the parallels being, you know, the fall of Rome with its diverse portfolio of conquered civilizations that it hasn't really assimilated properly and the way it violently quells any rebellion that starts to spring up. And... I'm not sure how much this comes across in the books, but 
as soon as the movie started to give the slightest impression that there could be any historical significance or depth to the story, the screenwriters got worried that the audience might forget they're watching a movie written for teenagers and that teenagers can't be trusted to follow a story that doesn't involve choosing between a romance with a vampire and a romance with a werewolf. <laughs> or in this case, two nearly identical male characters. So the interesting part of this story, if there is one at all, is clearly happening you know, outside the games themselves. But, you know, I should probably stop this and save this for spoilers <laughs> because it talks about how we're actually in the arena and we don't know about that going into the movie, do we? I think the Hunger Games title gives it away, but maybe, maybe not. Who knows? So, Josh, just so I'm clear, you don't like the movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I well, still don't know. I've drawn you along with me, and this is good because you're still awake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, as a whole... No, I did not like the movie because if you're going to make a movie that's two and a half hours long, it had better have a story. But I, I ended up feeling the same way I felt in Ender's Game, that the adaptation of the book took out every last bit of narrative context that it could have had available from the book in the service of maximizing the action and the special effects budget and ended up doing a very poor job of it that left the movie without any soul that it may have otherwise had and any reason for us to connect to the story other than the ridiculous love stories. So, no, the movie as a whole, I'm not a fan. And I I have a little bit more here, but I will now yield to Chris because I have taken <laughs> up the last 15 minutes with this yeah, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm I have really, enjoyed it very much. But. I'm I'm really glad I let you go first. That's all I'm going to say. Cause now, all right, Chris. It's about to be on. Here we go. It is about to be on. So um, I am polar opposite of Josh. Um, I loved this movie um, a lot. Uh, in fact, I was very surprised by it. The first one I didn't actually see in the theater. I watched it on Netflix as well several months, almost probably a year after it came out, and was surprised by how good it was because I was expecting it to be a very much young adult story, very much Twilight. You know, I was not interested in you that were not world. disappointed. At all, and I, I didn't feel like it was actually. And Chris, I don't at- need to ask this, but I'm going to. You haven't read the books, right? <laughs> no, I have not read Don- Don- right. Hunger Games. Just want to make so. sure. All right. No, I haven't. So, okay, but so this gives an interesting context because because we just watched the uh, Ender's Game, the Ender's Game movie um, last episode and reviewed that, and I really felt like it, the movie moved way too quickly and didn't spend enough time and just felt like a bunch of vignettes, you know, stitched together and not much kind of a cohesive, well-moving, fluid story. I felt the opposite about this uh, movie, and as far as it being a adaptation of a book, um, I really, I sat back, and within about 10 minutes, I was like, man, this is really pretty fantastic. And I would have sat in that seat another two hours if I could have finished the story. Um, but apparently now they're actually doing the third book in two movies as is being the trend. Really? Now. Um, so yeah, so there's actually two other movies coming out now for the third book or whatever. But anyway, so I, I actually really, I, I, I really liked it a lot. I, I thought the story moved quite well. I really enjoyed Philip Seymour Hoffman. I knew I wanted him to be in it more um, but the, the the scenes that he w- was in, I, I actually really did um, enjoy him. The cast is 
I think pretty fantastic. The acting is really well done. Um, and I, I don't know. I just like these kind of dystopian um, rise against the power type uh, stories. Fahrenheit 451. I've actually read that. Uh, I love that book. Um, 1984, same thing there, as well as, you know, a lot of the, the movies like Equilibrium and, um, you know, some of these, the, the, the films that, that I really like, that kind of rebellious rise against the power type stuff. And I really, I, I liked um, the vibes that this this movie gave off, and I, I really think it was a, a a pretty fantastic story, well te- told and well acted. So okay. I didn't have any problems with it, but I, I, I mean, you know, obviously I can see where Josh is coming from, but I, I don't know, I, I mm-hmm. it seems like a completely different, you know, movie uh, experience. But anyway, sure. so that was uh, that was where I came from. All right, Melody. So what do you think about uh, the Hunger Games? Well, I have read the books. I read them, probably read all three books in about five days uh, back a couple years ago. So I, I did, embarrassingly enough to admit, I did quite like the books. Um, and I did like the first movie. So I was expecting to like this movie, and I did. <laughs> I liked it a lot. I'm sorry, okay? I'm not usually, like, one for the, the teen movies at all, at like, seriously at all. But... I don't know. I don't know what the magic is about the Hunger Games, but um, I think because I did enjoy the books so much, I really enjoyed seeing them on the screen. I think rarely, if ever, have I seen a book so visually well represented on the screen as far as exactly what I pictured when I read the book. Um, that That is what I'm watching, and I love that. I love I love that they did so well with, with the visuals and with the casting and with the acting. Like seriously, Stanley Tucci as as Caesar Flickerman is literally he almost stole the whole show, whole show for me. Like his laugh, that's like just a little bit too hysterical, is just like speaks so perfectly of his of his character and of the world in general. And I just love it. He's so good, and I think Jennifer Lawrence is awesome as Katniss. Woody Harrelson, Woody Harrelson is Hamish. I'd say he's the only one that's probably better than the book. Like I think Woody Harrelson as Hamish is even better than Hamish in the book. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the other actors were great. The the only actor that I think is not uh, what I would hope the only character that is not as good as the book character is Peta. Um, I think um, a lot of maybe the layers that Josh was searching for uh, as far as the character development I think uh, are found in Peta's character, and I don't think that that comes across in the movies as well. But um, anyways, I could go on and on about uh, Finnick, I thought was awesome. President Snow was awesome. Philip Seymour Hoffman as Plutarch. Uh, Heavensby, is it? Um, I, I thought he did a great job. He, he like kind of dialed back his performance a little bit, I think, which is interesting because most, um, most of the performances are a bit over the top. But I think it totally worked and made him kind of stand out. Um, but he's Philip Seymour Hoffman, so he's going to stand out no matter what. Uh, the visuals inside the arena, and from what I remember, the storytelling inside the arena is pitch perfect to the book. It's exactly what I pictured. Um, so that was really cool to see that. Obviously, I, I have my complaints about the movie, but my complaints about the movie are quite similar to my complaints about the book. Um, and I can get into those in spoilers a little bit. But So if we're judging how well they... They took the book and put it on a film. Like for me, I give it pretty much a ten. Like I really think they did an awesome job. A ten. Um, All right. Yeah. Holy cow. Okay. Nice. Well, I 
like you, Melody, I have also read these books. Uh, I read them very quickly as well uh, a few years ago. And unlike the movies, the books progressively get worse, in my opinion. Uh, and in yes. particular, Agreed. Mockingjay, the last book, is terrible. I'm just going to hey, say Hey, are you getting... Is that a spoiler, though, Chad? That it, the book's terrible? I don't know. I don't think so. I think the book is I terrible. I feel like that's a bit of a spoiler, but okay. Okay. Spoiler. Chad thinks Mockingjay is terrible. Um, <laughs> but, and okay. so the fact that they're splitting that into two movies makes me kind of scratch my head. But let's talk about these movies. So there's a couple things here. I think one of the inherent issues that they have to deal with is that they're trying to take very R-rated, hardcore murderous material and make it into a PG-13 film. And so by its very nature, it feels much more sanitized than the actual source material is. And so that that is one issue where these, these movies just can't quite go where they need to go to get the same kind of uh, impact that they're, that they're searching for. I will say this, though. This movie, in my opinion, is a solid step up from the first one. Uh, the first movie, the action... I really hated the action. I really, I liked the first movie, but it was, I felt disappointed. I, I left this movie very, uh, very pleased. However, though, I, I'm in agreement with you 100%, Melody. I think the guy that plays PETA, I don't what's his name, um, Josh Hutcherson or something like that. Mm -hmm. Every time he's on screen, he looks like he is just staring blankly into uh, the abyss. He's just like, I'm waiting on drool <laughs> to fall out of his mouth. I'm just like, do something, <laughs> do something with your face, right? Because yeah. he's playing up against, you know, Jennifer Lawrence, who's an Academy Award winning actress and is, you know, has a great screen presence and, and he definitely doesn't. So I agree with that. But I, I, one of the things I've heard a lot of people complain about this movie being too long and about 45, 50 minutes in, maybe even an hour, I, I realized how much I enjoyed the fact that it took its time to yeah. set up the story, to set yep. up that it didn't rush straight to the action. I really enjoyed that. I wish Ender's Game had done that a little more. But one of the other issues that I realized, because I saw this with uh, some family members that had not read the books, is that I think that it is almost required reading to enjoy these movies as much as they're supposed to be enjoyed in as much as that if I didn't I feel like if I didn't have a lot of the backstory and information about a lot of these characters that I wouldn't enjoy these movies as much as I do now Chris hasn't read the books and he loved these movies so that may be not true for everybody but I know the people that I saw it with did not um, didn't like it quite as much and they were asking questions about well why was this character in there and why did they act like it was such a big deal they were only in there for five minutes you know and those kinds of things because they didn't have the back story and I think that's a weakness of the film if it doesn't stand alone without having the source material as the backbone then it kind of bumps it down a notch for me but overall big improvement from the first one it's going to make a you know a gazillion dollars um, mm -hmm. off of a pretty poorly written trilogy but an interesting story so uh, you know I'd say if you like the books you definitely go see it but uh yeah, it was good. I think it was good. I don't. I don't think it's bad. Most young adult movie adap adaptations these days are putrid. So yes. to me, this is this is great. It's good, solid filmmaking, and I really like the the visual style that uh, Lawrence brings to this. And I I think he's directing both of the the next two as well. So I think that's a good choice. I agree. I agree. <laughs> All right. So let's wrap up before we go into spoilers. Should people see this? And if so, should they see it in the theater? Yes or no? Josh. Netflix, if at all. 
(laughs) (laughs) All right, Chris? I think if uh, you're looking for a fun adventure and um, with a little bit of depth, I think you're going to really like this movie a lot. So, yeah, see it. See it in IMAX. Um, It does a great job of popping into IMAX for all the – I don't know if it's a spoiler or not, but the 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 climax of the film, or at least the last half of the film, uh, is all shot in IMAX, which is looks pretty spectacular. So definitely see it there if 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 you can. Okay, and Melody. Yeah, I think it's uh, fun, mindless entertainment, and most people will like it, unless I, they're Josh. Yep, I say see it, and yep. I don't even think it's mindless. I think there are a few layers to peel. I was away. just about to say the same thing. Yep. Yeah. Well, really yeah, do. okay, but it yep. can be mindless if you want it to be. Sure, sure. I would say go see it. I don't think you have to see this in the theater. I think it's going to stand up either way. Although Chris is right, they they shot the um, a large portion of this in IMAX. So uh, if you can see it in IMAX, it's probably worth it. So with that, let's move into spoilers. You're listening to the Screeners podcast. All right, welcome back. All right, Josh. So this movie has the seal of approval, three out of four. Tell us that we're wrong. Why is this not a great movie? We all think it is. It is It is not a great movie. And the reason why is that the interesting part of this whole story arc, if there is an interesting part, again, I have not read the books, uh, so I don't know whether the author was this intelligent or not, but the interesting part of the story is clearly happening outside of the arena but we're stuck in there for like an hour and a half watching characters we're told to care about only because they could die as they run from monkeys and poisonous fog and throw oh, knives. Oh, come on, dude. No, we're, we're, no, look, look. The interesting part is the revolution happening outside. I it's agree with geopolitical you. geopolitical drama, and we are stuck in there watching the girl with the bow and arrow, who, dude. by the way, is actually giving a great performance, but it's yes. a bad story. Uh, the, the, no, it's not a bad story. We're just following her and her experience. We're not. We're, this is an omniscient view of how things are going. We zoom away from her sometimes, but for the most part, we're following her story, which is why I think it's so interesting. <laughs> To see things through her eyes so that when you go to the different districts at the beginning of the film, you're as shocked as she is to see these things. Now, if we had the omniscient view and we were flying all around, it would be a different a different movie altogether. I think it's rather interesting that they chose to stay with her and we're going to follow her through this entire thing. And that's why the end of the film is such a shock because I didn't know that was coming. I, I, I understood that at some point... There is obviously a rebellion going on. I had a feeling Philip Seymour Hoffman had a, had had a little bit of, to do with it, but I had no idea how well um, uh, outlined and planned uh, the rebellion was. And so, for me, that was kind of an interesting thing. And I don't think you'd get that if you were moving all in and around the different districts and 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 actually seeing all that. I thought it was rather interesting that we stuck with her. Well, so I, I, I'm I'm glad that part draws you in, and I, I'm glad that you <laughs> you take her <laughs> as the, no, I, I didn't mean I didn't really mean that to be as insulting as it sounds. You just can't help I, yourself. Right. <laughs> I cannot help myself. It just bleeds through. <laughs> but no, I, I I'm glad that you appreciate the the non-omniscient view of that. But the problem for me is that I don't care about her. She seems she's a high school girl. She's she is a pawn of the revolution. And the revolution is what interests me. Right. And, and I, I don't care that the popular kids don't like her and she's an outcast. Right. And so this, know. The, this is she's where I think. She's a pawn of both, though. Yeah. That, this, that's interesting. I think this is also where the, and you can't, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I mm-hmm. think this is where not having the backstory 
like Melody and I do with the books, really fills in a lot of those blanks because she's not just a pawn of the capital, especially from the first book, which you you saw you just saw the movie on Netflix. It, it's yeah. much more layered and intricate than that. And even the love story, which <clears throat> on the surface, I certainly agree with you that they have to have that in there. But in the books, it's handled in such a different way um, that it really is a compelling part of the uh, part of the arc. But I do agree with you, Josh, that it's more interesting what is happening in uh, the districts. And that's one of the reasons that the books are not, uh, in my opinion, aren't that great, because even in the mm-hmm. books, there, there are many moments of pathos that could happen, p- uh, emotional payoff, where she just kind of sticks with what's going on with Katniss. But even in that, doesn't do a good job of kind of fleshing out what's happening in the world. So if you didn't like the second one, I don't think it's going to get any better. Um, See, no, I really really like, though, I really like the fact that she understands that she is the catalyst for a revolution or at least kind of the symbol for this revolution. And during her tour at the beginning of the film, which I've heard a lot of people be very critical of, like the the, the buildup to getting them in the cage or whatever – but for me, I, I liked I like what it. she was ha- ha- having to struggle with because she was like, either I'm going to you know, read the script and my family, friends are going to live or I don't. I do what I think you know, is, is best and you know, those people may possibly die or be punished or be hurt. Uh, and I'm already seeing them you know, willy-nilly just dragging old men to the street and killing them for just putting three fingers in the air or you know, saying, I, I'm, I'm with you. So I, I feel like... I don't know. I, I really liked that that we stuck with her. I I connected with that story, and I liked it that we were seeing a telling a smaller story, but with a big scope. If that makes sense, like you're actually just sticking with her, but knowing that her her actions have consequences other places. And I agree with you. Yeah, sure. Maybe the the story is more interesting, but I think the story that we're being told here is is pretty fascinating and, and, and interesting and, and intricate as well. So I don't know. I, 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 I liked it. I, I really did like that choice. Like, and I, I think really, it was a choice. I like hearing that Chris picks all that up from the movie because, I mean, he's definitely right about pretty much everything that he's saying. And the books are the story of Katniss because she is pretty much the reason for the revolution or whatever. Right. So I, I think it but definitely. The, but the cool thing is, is that she 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 didn't know she was right, like, and that's that's what makes the books interesting. Like you were yeah. saying, is her struggles with like being in that role that she didn't choose. She was just trying to like save her sister, and then <laughs> everything else just spiraled out of control. So and that's and that's what's I think interesting. It is a very compelling story, and but I I do think Chad is right that for a lot of people, and I'm glad that Chris picked up so much of it. But I think I do think for a lot of people, a lot of that is lost if you only see the movie. It all that you comes through. It's just yeah, I I'm not led to really you care do. about her as a character yeah. so much. Okay, yeah. Well, I guess that's one of the reasons why you definitely didn't enjoy the film then, because it is her story, not the rebellion's story. That's true. Well, the story inside the arena is just so plodding. It takes so long. But I see. But the things I I actually liked the arena story too because we literally about halfway not halfway um once they showed what the arena was going to be i looked at melody and i said why did they do this again it looks exactly the same as the first movie um and in the first movie they'd shown like other hunter games and they'd been in different like locations like a you know a city or a uh you know urban area or a um i don't know whatever it just you know different places and i don't know why they why in the world they decided to do it in that same jungle type setting 
but the clock thing was pretty cool and them trying to figure out what that meant. I don't know. I, I just got kind of <coughs> caught up in it and really enjoyed the the whole, I don't know, the world just seemed, I don't know, interesting to me. I agree, and I, th- I think the performances across the board, especially from the supporting characters in this movie, mm-hmm. also make up a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of the performances when they get into the games, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in the first one, it was very much more about the action, even though it was shot poorly. This one, it's a little bit more about trying to, even even if it fails a little bit, it's a little bit more about trying to get you to connect with the characters. Because in this sense, even though she doesn't know it, Katniss is being protected by half of the people in, that are in on this uh, this plot so, to get, her, to so get her out. Cool. Right? That was and so, so cool. I thought that it did a, a really good job to build your um, build your attachment to a lot of the supporting players. Like even and, Elizabeth Banks, right, who is the who's yes. supposed to be over the top. She has that little moment where she breaks down because that's yeah. like the first time in the in the two movies where she actually acknowledges that these are children that are being killed and that she's well, that probably never going to see them again. Right. Or that, it, yeah. yeah, that any of this has happened. And that's a powerful moment. I mean, it's, um, for me, it worked anyway, I should say, but Josh, Josh is right that it, once you get there, it mm-hmm. is a lot of the same. It is a lot of the same, uh, especially without the, you know, the filler, but, um, I loved it. I did not think it was too long at all. I, I oh, really, I was like I you, Chris. Either. I felt a little exhilarated at the end. I was like, yes. Yeah. If only I this literally wasn't went out of that theater. I know it goes. I was jumping up and down. I was like, Melody, this was amazing. What, what, what? I, I can't yeah. wait for the next one. And, and she looks at me and she's like, she's right. Everyone that we went with was the same. They hadn't, they hadn't read the books either. And so they were all like, oh, I can't wait for the next one. I hope they're making it right now. And I was like, well, guys, let's just appreciate the one we just saw <laughs> a little bit, okay? That's right. That's well, right. worried. So and for the benefit of my wife, who was admittedly asleep during half of the first one, um, <laughs> compare this movie to the first one. Was it better or worse? Just so she has a comparison to listen to me bash it because she didn't see the second one with me. The second one is um, much better. The, second the, sec- one better. the second one is better. The second one is The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, it yeah. it, it it literally. She has no frame of reference. I mean, she's seen them, but not everyone's the level of Star Wars. It's better in every you can, single conceivable yeah. way. It's, it's interesting because the book is not as good as the first book, in my opinion. Yeah, the first book's like, the best. Yeah, the first the book is the best. Well, sure. I'm really hoping that they can take slices and slivers of the third book and make it really good for these next couple. The thing of is, and, and this goes back to my issue with this whole series, is that the core story, in my opinion, is actually excellent. Even even the arc that it takes from the beginning all the way to how the, how it ends, it's mm-hmm. the execution of that story that is, in my I opinion, agree. not good. Her writing is not great. Um, the way she paced things off is not great. And the movies, mm-hmm. which is why I have actually a little glimmer of hope for the films, because if they have enough creative liberty yeah. to give yeah. you those things that, that you feel like, and I'm not talking about just fulfilling tropes, but there are just certain things that she ignores or writes very poorly that you should be really enjoying but you can't so i think where the story goes is wonderful so hopefully it will be an improvement on the book well that's good because because the the the, like you said before chad the cast is awesome donald sutherland is fantastic Mm -hmm. and subtle and and i I really liked his performance philip seymour hoffman didn't have enough to do in this movie but he was definitely i can tell that he was is excited about where he's going next because his performance was definitely yeah his performance was definitely like 
I'm doing sp- something specific, guys. Hang with me. Hang with me. And I was like, all right, okay, this is I'm, – I'm, anyway, even when I'm talking about this, I'm getting more and more excited to, just to <laughs> see it again. And I just – this Jennifer Lawrence, like you said, Academy he Award winning so actor. so in love with Jennifer Lawrence. I really am. She is great. So Watch is her on she, The Daily Show the so other night. The she was fantastic. <laughs> she is – anyway, she is. So I, I, I really I, – I enjoy the entire – everybody who's making these films. And so I'm, I'm, yeah. I'll go see the next two but just to even, support them. But even, even people like Jeffrey Wright, you know, the Beatty character, the you know the scientist kind of guy. Yes. You know, you just yeah. – you love those guys. They, yeah. they did a really Supporting. good – and one of the, you know, the character with the trident when they went in there in the book, yeah. that dude was it, that character was B.A. I mean, it was really <laughs> great. And they didn't really bring that over to this film. They tried yeah. to a little bit. But but overall, I, I don't see how anybody could watch this in comparison to the first one and not think that it's just a slam dunk compared to the first one. I agree. So actually a couple minutes ago you hit, you just hit my core complaint on the head, Chad, when you, when you said that the story underlying it is good. And that, that might be one of the reasons that I'm so down on this as a movie is that I really felt that somewhere the story itself had potential that was just not being realized in this script. Sure. And maybe even in the books themselves, that, like, say, the, the second yeah, and the third ones sure. get worse. It's th- there is a story here <laughs> that is really good, could be really good, but I just I didn't see it. Well, yeah. we've rambled on, but uh, yes. I think I think overall the three of us are uh, positive. Chris is probably the most positive, and Josh, um, shocker, uh, didn't enjoy it quite as much, but. Um, <laughs> That's it for The Hunger Games. Let's move to The Cutting Room Floor. The Cutting Room Floor. Okay, for our Cutting Room Floor this week, um, I have something that I'm very excited to talk about with all of you guys. Um, And if you have listened to our podcast recently, you might have caught the hint or 20 that I might have dropped uh, about the book project that I've been a part of over the last year. Uh, I've been working as an editor on an amazing um, fantasy allegory novel called The Great Darkening. And it's actually the first of a trilogy um, called the Epic of Haven Trilogy. And it is written by my good friend uh, Bobby Triplett, or as he will be known once the book is published, R.G. Triplett. Okay. Now, what you might not know uh, is that Bobby and I have recently decided instead of pursuing a traditional publishing route for the book, uh, is to form our own publishing house and publish uh, the book ourselves, which continues to be a challenging uh, but exciting journey that we get to be a part of. So uh, we thought that it would be fun to actually have the author himself on the podcast for our Cutting Room Floor segment today and maybe ask some questions about the publishing process and specifically um, about Kickstarter because um, the route that we have decided to go uh, on the publishing journey is to launch a Kickstarter project. So, Bobby, say hello to all the folks at home. Hey guys, how's it going? <laughs> we are <laughs> we are super excited to have you. And um, I know that the other guys, the other screeners, have some questions um, that they wanted to talk to us about. But I guess Bobby, do you want to give us just a little information of what the book is about before we get into our uh, questions that we have? Sure, absolutely. Well, the book, uh, like you said, it's a fantasy fiction, a high fantasy in that kind of realm. And the idea behind the book is there 
our, this world that we created, the world of Ainur, there is a burning tree is the only source of unmade light in all of this world. So no sun or moon or stars or anything like that. And so uh, what would happen if that burning tree started to consume itself? And that's where our story picks up. We begin to follow a character named Cal as he is living in a world that is quickly darkening around him. And he's one of the few that can hold on to hope that a new light is going to come. And so as we follow him, he's journeying through the dark parts of this world and he's finding new things to believe in as well as he's finding new parts of himself that he never knew existed. No, that's good, Bobby. So this is Chad. Uh, first of all, first special guest uh, in the history of the Screeners podcast. Yes. So welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I, I feel honored. <laughs> yes, as well you should, sir. As well you should. Indeed. We have dozens of listeners. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, dozens. Right, a dozen, right. a dozen of listeners. So, uh, one question I would have is um, just talking a little bit before we get sp- too specific about the book itself is what uh, what's your background with fantasy? If you uh, if you love fantasy growing up, what what kind of drew you into number one writing a book in general, and number two, uh, why fantasy? Sure. In I remember I was never much of a reader to be honest with you. I think uh, the extent of my reading was like Goosebumps. And Hardy Boys, ah, <laughs> yes. those are the classics that they are. That's very good. But I remember, I think it was sixth or seventh grade. The school that I attended, they for one of our acquired readings, we had to read The Hobbit. And I remember, like, what is this world? There's dragons and these little furry-footed guys. Like, this is amazing. And of course, I was then plunged right into the uh, the awesomeness that was those 1970s and 80s animated films mm-hmm. of The Hobbit. And, uh, <laughs> yep. And how wonderful that they were. And so going through high school, I was the kind of kid who just bs my way through most of the uh, the papers that I would have to write at the book reports. I'd watch the movie or read the back of the book. And I, I it did pretty well for me until, uh, and I'm a little bit ashamed to admit this, until college, I see go opening night to uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, Fellowship of the Ring. And I watch the film and I instantly, my mind was filled with like a million questions and I'm drawing all sorts of creative connections between certain races and certain types of people and swords and the allegory or the metaphor that could be buried in there, even if it wasn't on the surface or even if it wasn't meant to be, like I'm making connections in my brain. And I I was like, I have to know what happens to the rest of the story. And so I had been working for uh, a missions organization out of uh, St. Petersburg at the time, the band that I was in, we were touring and we had signed on with this, this company. And I found in one of the, we were staying at Eckerd College uh, for the summer, and I found in the in the dorm room the a really crappy mass market paperback version of the Two Towers. And after I saw the film, it was purple and it was awful. And so after I saw the film, I went and dug this thing out of like uh, you know the place where books go to die in my room at the time, and I like devoured it in two days straight. And then I had to go to the library the next day and get Return of the King and devoured that. And uh, proceeded to the same things with the, the Chronicles of Narnia series. I would mm. go through those and uh, just fell in love with the idea that you could tell a story to tell a story. As we're leading up to this this trilogy, did it always conce- was it always conceived in your mind at least as a trilogy, or was it just kind of the kernel of a story that started and kind of evolved? Tell us a little bit about yeah. that process. Yeah, actually, it wasn't uh, even in my, I had, it was not even on my radar to be a trilogy. I had just finished listening to a, it's a very small trilogy by a guy named Calvin Miller called The Singer. Has anyone ever heard of that one? I have. Yeah. Uh, 
And I was, I finished reading the story and I remember sitting here thinking like, this was really, it was awesome, but it was so on the nose. The allegory was so on the nose that was blatantly, you could tell who each character was blatantly supposed to be. And I remember sitting here thinking like, what if we, like, what if you tell this bigger picture epic uh, story without being so on the nose and, and and trust that if little things begin to spark in people's souls and in people's mind that when they seek they'll actually find an answer or be led to something or begin to want to chew more as opposed to just being spoon fed so I, I remember I could, I, plainly where I was, I was on Bloomingdale Avenue and I had just pulled out of the bank and I was driving I'm like I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a story you know what I mean I'm going to do this. And like, so this idea started coming in my head just very briefly and very elementary. And so I sat down and I knocked out a couple of horrible chapters. And so the, I, I remember just being enamored with the, um, this concept of a burning tree as well as it's in, you know, biblical history and it's part of my faith as well. I had no clue how long this story was going to be. I didn't even really know what the story was, how it was going to end. So, and by the time we started this, the ball started rolling. It was snowballing so much that the mythology just started coming into my head. I'll never forget. Uh, we got about chapter 30 in the story and it was the first time without trying like the mythology of the world we created just like vomited out onto the screen. And it was, it was, I was so excited. I remember like texting me like, I can't wait for you guys to read this chapter. I don't know where the crap it came from. You know what I mean? It was one of those, like yeah. the, the inspiration just, moved uh, fingers to keyboard and, and I was excited to watch it be born. It's the best part of the book. Yeah. And so in that, like we didn't know it was going to be a trilogy. And then as the story started going and the word count started going up, we realized there's no way that we could tell the story in one. And so we actually wrote this book would actually be in a series of seven. And this would be like five, six and seven would tell this story and then we've created the world with such mythology and history that there would be two more stories that we would tell in two book chunks before that mm-hmm. to create to create a seven series, seven book series. Josh here, and I'd want to kind of get down to brass tacks a little bit. We've been talking about the story, and that's great to get some background on it. Um, Melody mentioned that you were self-publishing, and so I'm interested in the decision-making that goes into that. I know self-publishing is, is growing now with... Uh, with Amazon and all the ebook platforms that are available and the fact that traditional publishing is so hard to break into. But for you guys personally, uh, what, what formed the, the decision to, to just go ahead and strike out and do it yourself? Yeah, well, I would tell you the first thing that came was the amount of creatives and artists and, and designers and dreamers and branders and proofreaders and uh, that had were a part of our community already that had volunteered or have received payment in the form of five dollar foot longs, um, <laughs> uh, hundreds of hours because they were so excited just about the idea of working on this project together. And so uh, I'll never forget as trailers were being made and mock-up designs were being made and websites were being made and the book was being edited and people were coming out of the woodworks asking to proofread. Um, I was talking to uh, three different published authors um, that have all published, one in, in a small press, one was in a traditional Christian press, and then one is more like an academic press. And they had said, why, why do you want to sell the rights to your book and your story and only take about maybe 
uh, of the royalties and split it up between everybody. When you have incredible designers and branding agents and marketers and dreamers and why why won't you just do this yourself? Contact every one of these self-publishing presses or these uh, you know vanity press arms of these major publishing companies that are out there. And in doing so, we started finding how um, incredibly high priced it was for the product. Oh, yeah. um, and so we started looking at these options, you know, and seeing like what this could be like. And in doing that, we started realizing that man, if we just raised a little bit more funds instead of doing one-off presses. We found a cup, two incredible printers, one to do the hardback that's in, out of Ohio called Masterbooks. And then we found one here in Tampa locally that's A&A to, to do the soft cover. And it was a fraction of the cost. The quality on some of it was even better. They're literally just serving as the printing division of our publishing company now. Yeah, cool. so when, when Bobby first came to me and, and was talking about the self-publishing thing, I mean, I think that most people have the view that I had of self-publishing, which is the vanity press thing, which is you take your book to one of these vanity presses, you pay them an arm and a leg, and then you end up with a garage full of your books that sits in your garage forever, but you feel happy because your name is on a printed book. And so I was like pretty against it at the beginning, um, just because... The, the book is excellent and you know I think it's it's gonna do really well and I didn't want to not pursue the traditional uh, publishing route but the more like Bobby said the more authors we talked to I mean every single one of those authors that we had talked to that encouraged us to do the self-publishing thing has also purchased their rights for their stories back from the publishers that published them because the their publisher basically messed with their story like one guy, they made him take out the villain of the story because they thought it was too scary or whatever, stuff like that. And after I had finished the last like major editing pass of the book, I just got to thinking like, man, I, we don't want like a publisher coming in here and and changing the story that we've worked so hard to write. So I think that was another big reason that, that we have gone the self-publishing route is basically to maintain the integrity of the story. But like also I think the more that I've learned about the industry, the more I see it changing. And the self-publishing small press thing is honestly like the best way to do it because like Bobby said, you maintain the control. And if you can find the like the creatives to do the the work of like the videos and the design and stuff like that, that that's what you would need a publisher for is stuff like that. Because otherwise publishers don't even advertise your book. Like all of the authors that we've talked to, the, the publishers put the book in a catalog, but they're not the ones out there advertising for your book. You have to do that, whether you have a publisher or whether you do it yourself. Uh, well, that was the most disturbing part in all of this is that when we started talking to these authors, they had said, well, how many marketing dollars are you going to have to put to the project? And I was like, well, well, why would we need that if a traditional publisher picks us up? They're like, well, it has gone completely the way of iTunes, the way that iTunes went with the music industry, um, revolutionized everything. And so now, the, the record labels are, are signing people who already have platforms and audiences who already know how to self-public, self-market and self-publicize. And so the same thing, the publishing industry is, is a couple years behind and they're picking up on this. Like, um, we're going to reward the self-starters, but we're going to do it on their dime. Most of what is happening now is you'll get your picture of your book in a catalog that gets shipped 
with to all the the you know brick and mortar stores, but your picture is one of like however many thousands of books were new books that year. You know what I mean? And so I'm sitting here thinking like, if we're gonna have to do it anyway, let's do it with the greatest amount of royalties in our pockets so that we can reward our friends and bless those who, you know, created with us. So yeah. that was one of the that yeah it was a big deal to us. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned about you know having a marketing budget. What so you're gonna do it anyway? So. What is your marketing budget? How are you getting that? How are you funding yourself? I know we talked a little bit about um, going 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 the Kickstarter way. Why 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 choosing that platform over than like maybe the traditional like um, uh, investor type deal or what what you know how are you funding yourself? I guess as far as yeah. uh, as far as that stuff goes. Well, yeah, we we decided to go the Kickstarter route. Um, and doing this, it's a way to create momentum both for the, the buzz of the book uh, and, and the excitement around that, as well as it'll be a way that we can reward people for their generosity too. Um, we figured that the, um, the Kickstarter way with all of our different platforms that we have, uh, whether it's through uh, cooking or whether it's through church planning or whether it's through pastoring or whether it's through business or filmmaking or you name it, whatever, the camp, everything involved here with our different platforms, that we would have enough friends and family uh, that would be excited enough about this project that even if they were only able to give small uh, backing donations or support, backing support, um, that that accumulatively would be able to be enough to launch the book, to pay for the ISBN numbers and the distribution rights and the Kindle configuration and the and the the print, the limited edition print runs and the Google AdWords, you know what I mean? So we did some research on what it is that we would need to get this off the ground, not to mention all of our legwork with our launch team that we have positioned all over the country right now. Um, so we did all this research of what we thought we would need to do and, and our marketing budget is $10,000, um, which in reality, if we were paying an editor outright, designers outright, filmmakers outright, edit like um, proofreaders outright, you know, publicist outright, uh, ten thousand wouldn't do anything. You know what I mean? And so uh, we were excited about the Kickstarter project, and in doing this, it actually launches this Sunday, December first, and um, and it'll run for thirty-seven days, and we hope to uh, to knock that one out of the park. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Come and on. we actually we actually have a, a stretch goal uh, in addition to our ten thousand dollar goal for Kickstarter, um, which is a twenty thousand dollar stretch goal. And if we do that, we are going to record um, an audiobook of the uh, Great Darkening, um, which will be really really fun. And again, we have you know everything in house to be able to do that as well. So I think we we are uniquely positioned as Bobby mentioned to be able to do a lot of this stuff without additional costs. So a couple a couple of quick things here as we wrap up. Uh, Bobby, what would you say where do you see this going? Who is this book for? You know, why should yeah. why should why should our listeners be interested in this book? What what is it about this book that's going to really hook them? Sure. Well, it, at first I thought it was just going to be for the epic fantasy crowd and the few uh, obligatory friends who were going to read it just because they liked me, not necessarily because they liked the genre. But as as we've been finding from some of our, our, our beta teams, we have stay-at-home moms who only read romance novels that couldn't put it down. And we had uh, college professors that, you know, just blew through it. So, like, that was, the, that was a really unexpected, to be honest with you, uh, and so I, I would say this is, um, and this 
this book would be for those who love the epic fantasies, the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, but those it would also be for those who are willing to try the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings type of fantasy genre mm-hmm. um, without feeling so overwhelmed with the exorbitant amount of characters and a uh, massive amount of languages. Um, so it would, I feel like it would be a good introduction into a fantasy world. And I would also say this would be, um, the story would be for those who are willing to read between the lines and look at the layers. Uh, for me, the stories that last are the ones that have layers, where it's not just about what's happening on the surface. There's a way for my soul to connect with the narrative there. The story is for those who want an adventure and want to find themselves in the process. I hope that those who uh, have loved C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and Martin and uh, J.K. Rowling, like, they would uh, they would give our team a chance and the Epic of Haven a chance and that they'll find that uh, the story is, is layered with all sorts of beauty. Awesome. Well, I'm looking here now uh, at the uh, Kickstarter link that's going to go live, uh, would you say December 6th? First. First, first. December 1st. And so I would encourage all of our listeners uh, on December 1st to go to kickstarter.com and uh, just search for the Great Darkening Book 1 Epic of Haven Trilogy. It looks like you've really got some cool rewards here and uh, some very creative ones as well. Uh, the the steak <laughs> from the chef sounds very enticing to me. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I will... I will come cook my face off for you if yeah, you go to back man. our book that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it uh, would be worth it. Well, yeah, I think maybe also this is the URL epicofhaven.com yeah. to go there for more information um, about the project as a whole, uh, as well as a link to the Kickstarter campaign. But there's a great trailer up there that kind of gives you an idea of what the book is going to feel like, at least, and yeah. um, get a little bit of introduction to the world um, that, that Bobby's created along with Melody and, and a lot of other folks. Um, so it's it's uh, it's exciting, and I think that just to, to take a look at it, and um, if it's something that's interesting to you, uh, throw a couple of bucks our way, and I definitely think it will be, um, it'll be worth it for you. Yeah, I think you'll really, really... Uh, uh, have a have a good time in, in the Epic of Haven series. Awesome. Well, thanks, Bobby. Uh, hey, thank go- you guys so much for having me. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. Epic of Haven. Let's make it happen. Thanks for tuning into the Screeners Podcast. We love doing this, and we love hearing from you guys. So if you'd like to talk about something you heard on this episode, or if there's something you didn't hear but wish you had, if you have a question for any of us about any of this, just drop us a line. No matter how you're used to getting in touch with people online, there's a good chance you can get in touch with us like that too. On Facebook, search for Screeners Podcast. Tweet us at ScreenersCast. Leave us a comment at ScreenersPodcast.com or you can also, by the way, read the show notes. Or send us an email at ScreenersCast at gmail.com. And as always, if you like what you hear, sign up, subscribe on iTunes, and leave us a good review. It helps us a ton. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time. And that's a wrap. You've heard what the screeners had to say. Now you be the critic. Head over to screenerspodcast.com and let us know what you think. See you next time.